Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. Good evening, and welcome to Ask a Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our program, and joining me tonight, as always, is Dr. Jesse Noose. Hello! So, it's Rosh Hashanah tonight. Uh, <laughs> strictly speaking, for... By the time this gets posted, it will, of course, no longer be Rosh Hashanah. It will be, like, Hanukkah, December, probably. probably? Yeah. <laughs> Hanukkah? <laughs> Possibly into January, depending on what our schedule winds up looking like. But I guess I should start by saying that, you know, sometimes you'll see Jewish people of your acquaintance uh, posting Rosh Hashanah or New Year's wishes for several days in a row, uh, because outside of Israel, Rosh Hashanah is typically celebrated for two days. And, well, it depends on how, how conservative you are, but two days. And then people also celebrate the night before, which is known as Erev Rosh Hashanah. Yep, because all our holidays are sundown so, to sundown. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, the benefits of a lunar calendar. Yes. So, <laughs> tonight is, strictly speaking, the night of... The fir- like the end of the first full day of Rosh Hashanah, I guess we should say, mm-hmm. um, since it started last night. It's a it's a great holiday uh, related to having a new year, having a sweet new year. We eat apples and honey. Yes, round challah. Um, round challah. Um, ce- celebrate like s- the year coming full circle, I guess. Mm-hmm. I think it's, is it traditional to put like raisins and stuff in the challah too for, yep. for new year to make it sweeter? Yeah. Um, challah is typically a pretty sweet bread anyway. Like my recipe has a third of a cup of honey in it. Oh wow. So yeah. Is our old family recipe that ran in the Chicago Tribune right around, uh, 1980 <laughs> and has been, <laughs> It was my father's favorite recipe and passed to me, consequently. Yay. So, yes. It is a very good, reliable recipe. It is, yeah. So, yeah. But I bring this up because tonight we're going to talk about Jews. Yes. Jew eat? Jew eat? Yes. No, it is sorry. also worth um, <laughs> pointing out that because of the time it is, you know, eagle-eyed listeners or whatever, um, eagle-eared listeners, will notice that this means that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Oliver Shalom, died last night. Um, yes. So we've actually been chatting for an hour pre-taping about that. Uh, normally you would yes, say, actual, may her memory be for hour. a blessing. Yes. But I have noticed that the current take is to say, which is much better, may her memory be for a revolution. Yes. So there we are. Um, and I think that's very appropriate, given her life. Yes. Honestly. Um. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> um, yes. So may her memory be for a revolution. Um, by the time this airs, we will know if there was one, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Well, I mean, revolutions don't happen overnight, no. so it may still be ongoing. Yes, we'll know if the revolution is continuing. I mean, it's been going on for a while at this point, I think. Yeah. We'll know if it still continues. Yes. We'll know if it is being televised, yes. as Marshall 
McLuhan warned us about potentially. Yep. <laughs> As we, I mean, hopefully. Um, <laughs> yes. Because otherwise... Things will continue to change. Yes. Because otherwise we'll have reached complete entropy and time will have no yes, meaning. Yes, and probably there will be no technology left because it will have all exploded. And... Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> hopefully... Well, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I know how to sew. Right. I guess... <laughs> um... I'm thinking of the end of, of other the third movie in the Cornetto trilogy, which is Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz. And then the last one, the World's End, I think is the last one. Right. Yes. And that's basically how it ends, like, because of what happens. And then there's kind of no technology. And yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so this might be what our future looks like. Who is to say? In which case, they probably won't be listening to this podcast. That's true. Oh, no. Uh... Yeah. But, um... Still podcast technology. Still, yes. If we still have RSS feeds in the future, you will be able to listen to this podcast. Yes. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> so, congratulations, future lucky listeners. Yes. I hope that your lives are going as well as things are today. It's a beautiful day. It was here, too, actually, yes. Yeah. Which is nice. Yeah, but we are continuing our sort of theater. Uh, last time we discussed theater architecture and stages and staging. Um, and so this time we're on a little bit to the things portrayed. And so this was a question that we never fully addressed. Um, and that is sort of uh, the portrayal of Jews on stage, but also Jewish theater in the Middle Ages. Uh, both of yes. these things. Um, yeah, so this is also sort of a nice time to talk about that. Um, and I figured we'd start with actual Jewish theater in the Middle Ages. So okay. it definitely existed. That's a good place to start. Okay. Um, so tell me about language. Um, was it mostly like Yiddish language theater? Was Do people do it in the local language? So there's definitely two forms, I guess you'd say. Right. There is Jewish theater in the local Jewish dialects, which, of course, mm -hmm. sort of depends on where you are. So Yiddish, we've talked about this before, I think. Yiddish, of course, is sort of Germany, Eastern Europe. Um, Ladino would be Spain. You know, so there's, depending on where you are. Judeo-Arabic. Yeah. Yes. Judeo-Persian. Right. So, um, so there's definitely Jewish theater. And um, that is something, of course, that continued well not just into the early modern, but all the way into the modern mm -hmm. era, even today. And by today, I mean, of course, not literally today, but before the plague. Um, Yiddish theater absolutely still exists. Uh, and even yeah. the Yiddish, there's a Yiddish translation of Fiddler on the Roof that has been going nonstop in yes. New York. <laughs> I saw a very clever video of the cast of that show where they did other shows in Yiddish mm -hmm. as like as as a medley, mm -hmm. um, including a scene from Wicked, where you know in the actual staging of Wicked, there's this amazing huge like they lift the actress up, yes, like twenty feet above the stage, yes. and so for this medley, they just had her like sitting on somebody's right. shoulders, <laughs> which honestly, <laughs> well, now that you say my, that, um, it makes me think of a wedding, like a Jewish wedding where you lift someone on a chair. 
Yeah, but you'd put her on a broomstick, I suppose. Yeah, it's <laughs> sort of similar, but yeah. Yeah, with yeah. a broomstick and a pointy hat and um and they did they did the Lafayette oh rap gosh. or part of it from um Hamilton. I have to find this. Yeah, in Yiddish. It's I'll put a link to it in the comments because it it's quite clever. Uh but also it's stuff that you would not have expected in nope. Yiddish. So right. that's great. Um you really don't have to speak right. Yiddish to enjoy it. No, well, either. and that's the like, funny you thing know about the, the Fiddler is that it's had a huge audience. So it's been very much something that people who presumably do not speak Yiddish have gone to see, because clearly the audience has ranged far beyond yeah. the sort of Yiddish speaking. Um, that being said, I mean, I think a lot of even very, very secular Jews are familiar with Yiddish on a basic level, but and probably familiar with Fiddler on a basic level. <laughs> So you might feel like you're understanding right. it, but you would not, in fact, know what every word meant. Yeah. Word for word. Um, yeah. It's like the way I feel yes. about the Passover liturgy. You know, you you hear it enough times, you sort of go. Right. Oh. But, I mean, like, the primarily, primary population of Yiddish-speaking Jews, I feel like, is primarily very orthodox old <laughs> Belgian men. Um, and people who live in, you know, Brooklyn, maybe, but like not necessarily the population of theater growers. Well, but that's sort of the point, right? That, um, Yiddish theater has a wonderful old tradition. A, right? B, that also means that Jewish theater, like theater is really built into Judaism at a somewhat fundamental level. In ways that are interesting. Um, so while, of course, there are definitely certain sects, presumably, of sort of very conservative Jews who don't like theater, just because that's a thing everywhere in the world. There's always someone who doesn't like theater. Right. Um, but at a fundamental level, you have things <laughs> like uh, Purim spiels, right? Plays, which just means a Purim play. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, theater really is built into... Purim as a holiday, right? Um, the yeah. same way sort of Christmas pageants are built into Christmas, right? So, um, mm-hmm. th- but there is this sort of fundamental way in which performance is important. So Yiddish theater is a genre of something that has sort of maintained. And because there are still communities who speak it, usually conservative communities, and by conservative here we mean orthodox, religiously conservative so traditionally yeah. practicing. Um, but definitely there are plenty of people in those communities who do embrace theater as something that is important. You know, and then, of course, sometimes their children might not mm-hmm. be as observant, but still know Yiddish. So <laughs> this is sort of how the tradition continues. Yeah. Um, it is worth pointing out, just for listeners who are interested in theater, um, that uh, Paula Vogel's play Indecent which was on Broadway, I don't know, a few years ago. Um, yeah, yeah, it's I fantastic. And you can also watch it on pbs.org. You know, it was filmed for PBS, as these things are. A brilliant production. But it's also about God of Vengeance by Sholem Ash, which was a Yiddish play written in Europe. I mean, he wrote it in Poland. Um, mm-hmm. But it traveled, um, Germany, you know, traveled throughout Europe, 
came to the U.S., was done sort of very Lower East Side Yiddish theater, was translated into English eventually because it was such a big hit, um, was done, I think, at Provincetown Players, which um, is the theater that was sort of founded by Susan Glassbone and her husband and some other people. Um, Eugene O'Neill got his start there. So really important. Eugene O'Neill actually saw, Eugene O'Neill saw God of Vengeance, actually, at this production. Um, it was then moved uptown a little bit to Broadway. And the censors got at it. Because mm. now it's in English, and it's being put very much in the public eye. Um, and what Indecent is about, the reason Indecent is named Indecent, is because um, it, it contains a lesbian couple. Essentially, the daughter of the rabbi, um, mm -hmm. or the daughter of the patriarch of the family, basically. Um, he is trying, he owns a brothel. <laughs> he wants to marry his daughter off to the son of the rabbi. And, um, Ooh, he's, but he's okay. made all his money in this brothel and he's got this family Torah that he paid for. Um, and the daughter, of course, falls in love with the sort of main girl of the brothel. Um, and so they're the couple of the play. And it's indecent is gorgeous, and the original play is gorgeous. But the censors really got a hold of it, of course, when it moved uptown to Broadway and destroyed it and, you know, made it sort of terrible. Um, it gets shut down for indecency. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and they okay. took it. The producer was also a lawyer. We do have a bit of a Jewish stereotype here, but there we are. <laughs> um, he was also <laughs> a lawyer. There's some great pictures of the cast... Um, yeah. at the sort of initial court hearings and stuff. Um, Rudolf Schildkraut played the patriarch. He was a well-known actor. Um, anyway, the original case comes down against them, and they appeal it, and that one, it was agreed, freedom of speech. You know, it had to be allowed to go on. So they did eventually hmm. win, but by then, of okay. course, you know, the production was over, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, Eugene O'Neill was apparently willing to testify but was not allowed to because he had only seen the initial production before it got changed for Broadway. Um, mm. Which is to say, technically, when it was, by the standards of the censors, even more indecent, but definitely a better play. <laughs> um, anyway, um, so that's so Paul Vogel's Indecent is about that and about the trajectory of the company and who did it and all of those things. Um, but it's worth remembering, right, that this really sort of interesting way in which Yiddish theater um, has been historically important all the way into the modern era was historically important to New York theater. I mean, Yiddish theater, Yiddish theater actors mm -hmm. absolutely were very important to the New York theater scene um, on Broadway, but also the larger scene. Um, and plays like this, the idea that this was the first um, lesbian kiss on Broadway is sort of how <laughs> how it's advertised now. Um, but it was, right? Yeah. So there's some really important things about Jewish theater as a genre, about Yiddish theater in the U.S. Um, but it's definitely a reminder of the ways in which theater absolutely is important to Judaism. Um, as, of course, it was to Christianity and also to Islam. <laughs> These are all traditions um, that have... Yeah. Tremendous sort of histories with theater. Uh, we've talked a little bit about Islam because we've talked about Ibn Daniel. Mm -hmm. uh, for Islamic theater, it is largely things like shadow puppets because of the potential um, 
prohibitions against certain types of representation. Right. Um, but shadow puppets, mm-hmm. you know, there's a huge history of theater. Um, so there are all of these traditions. Obviously, when we think of the Middle Ages in Europe specifically, we tend to think of passion plays, miracle plays, morality plays, right? Um, because the Christian tradition mm-hmm. is the one that, of course, is sort of famous. But Jewish tradition is absolutely also important. So that's starting sort of <laughs> from the present day, working backwards. The tradition, the Jewish tradition has always existed. This is the other important part in both whatever the vernacular languages. So, for example, God eventually shows up in the U.S. Eventually, it turns gets translated into English, right? But also, this tradition has absolutely existed in whatever Jewish vernacular any given area has. Yes. So, both of these traditions have existed. Now, the other sort of interesting thing <laughs> is the fact that. Um, Frequently, and this sort of depended, but um, in Italy particularly, there could be traditions of Jewish communities performing theater for the larger community. Uh, And this, what's interesting is that this wasn't necessarily a stereotype of Jews, of the many stereotypes that are still around, lawyer, doctor, moneylender slash banker. These are all stereotypes that existed because of the way medieval society was set up, Mm -hmm. right? So Christians were not supposed to lend money at interest. Obviously they did. This is how capitalism works. (laughs) We've talked about like the Scriveni chapel. Um, But theoretically they were not supposed to, right? Whereas uh, Jews were allowed to lend money at interest. And in a capitalist society, somebody has to be doing things with interest, um, so Jews as bankers, mm-hmm. you know, become a stereotype. That is still a stereotype. Similarly, I think that Jews couldn't own land, right? Frequently. Yeah. So people, so pe- you know, people could get pushed into the cities um, and get more into professions like medicine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So because... medicine, um, law, these are also both professions that potentially... Not always, but potentially require some level of learning. Yeah. Um, which is something that the Jewish community could access. You know, you couldn't, you mm-hmm. didn't have to go to the local law school and, you know, you just had to read enough to be able to practice law, right? You know, people were not right. certified in quite the same ways. Um, so it wasn't that you had yeah. to be able to go to like Padova to become a doctor, no, no. But you had to be able to access books and learning. And this is something that the Jewish mm-hmm. community could do. And yes, then you could practice these. You didn't have to own land, right? You could. There are a lot of things you could do. Um, so these, of course, also both become stereotypes. The interesting thing about medicine, which we've talked about a little bit before and might again in the future, is the extent to which Jewish doctors, as this does become a stereotype, um, there start to be a lot of sort of discussions about to what extent are they allowed to serve the Christian community? Um, can you ask a Jewish doctor before you ask a Christian doctor? You know, all of these things sort of become mm-hmm. a, an issue. Um, but anyway, performer isn't necessarily a stereotype. Magician is. Jewish wizards are a stereotype. Uh, it is. This is one of the aspects of education, which is another stereotype that, of course, still exists. Mm-hmm. But the idea that Jews were very well educated, which, of course, they weren't all, obviously. But um, but right. the sense that they were um, 
and that Jews were very good at magic, that Hebrew was a language well suited to magic. This this was a very strong stereotype. Today we have this stereotype of sort of Jewish performers, right? The idea of sort of Jewish Hollywood. This is absolutely a stereotype that exists. Right. Marx Brothers on forward, yes, at least. Absolutely. Right. <laughs> um, and yet the sort of interesting thing is that this is arguably a more recent stereotype, but this is a long standing tradition, actually. Mm-hmm. And s- I always wondered. So I know that we have a mutual friend slash friend of the show who actually studies Jewish magic yes. and uh, <laughs> may have yes. to put some of these questions to mm-hmm. her. Um, but I know that when you look at the way that Jews relate to texts yeah. um, versus the way that Christians related to texts until much later, um, you you see like a lot of ritual and belief surrounding the arrangement of letters in things. Yes. You know, that finding other messages in the way things are written or counting up the numerical value of things. And I always wondered if part of the association between Judaism and magic is that that textual interrogation that they performed versus your average Christian up until at least the era of the printing press did not necessarily have, like, access to the the Bible in the same way. Access to the Bible is an interesting point. I can say... I only... I'm guessing... Yeah. I'm only guessing this based on Victor Hugo. Okay. <laughs> uh, and yes. that line about, like, this will be the death of yes. of that, pointing at well, Notre Dame. Like, I, right. I, I'm making a lot of yeah. this up, I can but. say, um, one of the... So there are a few things. One of them um, is the fact that... Um, (laughs) first off, um, there's actually an astonishing amount of magical texts, treatises, um, written by Jewish authors. So Mm -hmm. this, so on the one hand, right, um, as you might think with like law books or medical treatises today, this was an area in which Jews really knew their stuff, so that is one okay. place that their authority came from. There is also the fact that, of course, the religions of the book, right? Judaism, mm-hmm. Christianity, Islam are all text-based religions in a way that is a little unusual, even for other religions that have yeah. really important texts. Mm-hmm. Hinduism, right? Now, the extent to which... Judaism, Christianity, and Islam are really rooted in a text is highly mm-hmm. unusual. Um, it is no. also... I was recently reading a book on Haitian voodoo, actually, where what felt like a very interesting contrast, they would have a ceremony, and the the priestess leading the ceremony uh, would ask the people who were assembled for the ceremony, like, Remind me what song should we, you know, like they have a specific order that they do the songs in to call the, to call the, um, spirits down. And so she'd be like, what song do we do next? Or, you know, it's like a communal remembering process versus we have a list, the thing that we always (laughs) see in like Judaism, Christianity, Islam, where there's a, 
a head authority who knows what's going on and tells you what right. what happened. But also it's written down. Like it's always written down, right? Um yeah. Yeah, it's written down. So you can step into that role if you have yes. a little bit of training um, versus But that is also so Judaism is also known very much as and this is a thing I can't remember how much we talked about this. This was cuz this was a very early episode. This was our episodes 2 and 3 were on Easter. Um that yeah. as far as Christianity is concerned that Judaism is very much about the letter of the law. And Christianity is about the spirit of mm-hmm. the law. And this is a distinction that's incredibly important to Christianity. Um, and is very much apparent in some of the things we're going to talk about in a second, actually, the way that Jews are portrayed on stage. Um, and so that also meant um, it was it was a negative way of looking at the ways in which Judaism was very text-based, right? You, the letter of the law, right? Mm-hmm. So um, things that food that is kosher, food that isn't, for example, right? Um, or clothing, right? You know, don't wear mixed threads. Um, don't shave your beard. Yes. I, get, <laughs> I got into trouble one time when um, the wife of the uh, Chabad... Rebbe in Ho Chi Minh City asked me where I got kosher food. And I was like, oh, I just, you know, I was, I just eat vegetables anyway. So I just, you know, you can kosher a head of broccoli yourself. But I said something like, you know, there's not much marked as kosher here, but there's a lot of stuff marked as halal. And I think the preparation process is probably the the same. same. (laughs) And yes, but. It turns out it's really important that it says kosher versus yes. halal. Well, in a way that, like, if you're raised reform right. in the United States, you might not be thinking about it right. like that. Well, it's important in the sense that, you know, but of course it's the same God. Um, but the prayer uses Adonai right. or Allah, depending, right? <laughs> like, th- these are the main differences. Yeah. Um, but yes, right. Th- it is basically the same. Of course, it's the same. It comes from the same place. Like, <laughs> the idea is the same. Um, yeah. But that that is this point, right? So the idea of the letter of the law and that um, Christianity, because of, you know, sort of the alteration mm-hmm. in the contract created by Jesus, um, that now they have to follow yeah. the spirit but not the letter, which is why they don't have to follow any kashrut. This is also something that gets brought up, of course, when people who are devout Christians, oh, well, no, people who are devout Christians want to complain about homosexuality. And you're like, well, but if you know you now follow the spirit, not the letter, why pick out that one thing out of- Why do you care? Why not pick out the one about shrimp? I mean, right? You either do or you don't care about them according to the Uh, letter. (laughs) Right? Yes. Um, Yes. (laughs) But anyway, so- so yes, Judaism is seen as a very sort of literally text-based religion. The idea of the letters, um, also the extent to which certain ways, like the we talked about this before, I think the Hebrew spelling, um, one of the Hebrew spellings for God, for the name of God, that is known as the Tetragrammaton because it's four letters, um, is definitely something you conjure with a lot. Yeah. Um, but that being said, like you know that there was the sense that Jews really understood magic they wrote a ton of stuff about it um but they were seen as authorities (laughs) in this interesting way um and so 
you might refer to what a Jewish authority had said about, you know, talking to angels or raising angels or the names of angels, because this was something that was mm-hmm. seen to be sort of knowledge that Jews had. Um, you know, so medicine, <laughs> uh, less controversial today, um, but, you know, similar. Um, anyway, so there were these things that Jews did do that they also did for the Christian community. Potentially, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and theater could be one of them. And this was true, truer in some places than others. Um, the most sort of best known, I guess, certainly best studied. Um, and I'm going to call it specifically, I think I mentioned her at the end of maybe last performance, but uh, or last podcast, but uh, Arit Jaffe Berg, uh, who has a great article, um, Performance as Exchange, taxation and Jewish theater in early modern Italy. Mm-hmm. And she's talking about the Jews in Mantua particularly uh, because this was a community where um, they performed. The Jewish community was known as sort of this really excellent theater community. <laughs> um, and they sometimes performed in a very variety of places Various, various places. Um, but particularly, this is why the taxation aspect, um, they were essentially required to perform for the Mantuan community um, every year. And that this was on some level considered a form of taxation. It worked in some ways as a form of taxation, right? The Jews would put on this performance at their own expense mm-hmm. for the community, um, and also sometimes for the ruling family, the Gonzaga family, um, for spe- special occasions. Mm-hmm. And so instead of taking like 10% of their money, you're taking like 10% of their performing hours or something. Right. Probably well, but like you know, that, if but... you could like tap your favorite theater troupe and be like, <laughs> you're going to perform, you know, next month at your own expense. Right. Um, and for that, they yeah. got some protection, basically. Mm-hmm. And there's some really interesting stuff related to this because um, as we move into the early modern era, which is to say, you know, 1500s particularly, that there's definitely changes in the relations between Christians and Jews, growing tensions, uh, because, of course, once Luther has, you know, nailed his treatises to the and basically started Lutheranism, uh, we get Protestantism. We've always had proto-Protestantism, but once we get a full-on breakaway, um, that's it, right? So you have things like the Council of Trent, 1545 to 63, um, where the sort of Catholic sections of Europe are really trying to figure out what they're going to do, crack down, um, and one of the things they crack down on, right, whenever there's religious dissent, you crack down on everybody. Right? Um, and so, of course, Jews are become mm-hmm. one of those groups that are cracked down on. Um, right? You've got to sort of all dissent has to go away. Um, and so the Gonzaga, right, the ruling family, um, continues actually to protect the Jews for quite some time. 
Um, and this arrangement really continues where the Jewish community performs. Um, and there's certain oh. performers who are really well known. Um, and there's even, um, mm-hmm. Leone de Somi, uh, 1527 to 92. Um, he's really important playwright in the Jewish community. Um, he wrote at least 14 plays that were performed all over, like state events. Oh. Um, and in an academy, you know, the Academy, like the Academy of Florence, right? They're all these, um, what would we call them today? They're not actually schools, necessarily. And it's not like the Elks. It's like a Sort guild? of like a guild, a confraternity. Kind of. Yeah. Um, okay. So, you know, yeah, they're special. Because, of course, a guild is like, um, specifically sort of um, based around usually what you do. Right, craft-based, essentially, or business-based. Mm-hmm. Um, these are sort of for important citizens. It is a little bit like the Elks, let's be fair. <laughs> or whoever's, <laughs> you know. i to be honest, <laughs> I grew up in the Midwest, and the only thing I know that Elks and Moose and whatever do is, like, yes, usually well, a fish fry. Yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what else they do. Um, right, not not that part of it. I mean, in as much as this is like the important, like the Rotary Club. Yes, like the Rotary. Right, it's the important citizens of the town get together to do stuff. Right, and so you might yes. have a confraternity that's specifically geared towards, um, like your yearly Christmas pageant or whatever. Right, and then the all the citizens okay. get to you know, uh, but you also might have one that's like specifically geared towards the fact that. Yeah, every year you do a certain charity thing. You know, whatever. Um, all right, so uh, he got... Most of these, of course, were Christian only. Like, you couldn't join one if you were Jewish, which brings us, of course, back to the Marx Brothers. <laughs> right. Um, you don't want to join any group that would allow you... I wouldn't want to be a member of any club that would have me yes. as a member. Um, this has very much been a guiding principle in my life. Yes. Uh, also, of course, um, Groucho sending his kid... I think it was, it was like to the local golf club or something to swim in the pool and he got sent back because he was Jewish. He wasn't allowed in and he supposedly sent him back and with this, a note that said he's only half Jewish. Can he go in up to his waist? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Anyway. Um, so, uh, so Leone here, he, he was actually invited to join one of these because of that's how important he was as a playwright and a member of the theatrical community. Um, and his plays were also done in sort of at Gonzaga family weddings and carnival. Um, so he was really important. Uh, he also was involved in things nearby in Ferrara. So, um, the mansion Jewish community, theater community was clearly like the really highly sought after one in the area. So they would even get loaned out to the other towns, some of which were very big in their own right, but, you know, maybe didn't have the same theatrical chops. Um, all right. So this community uh, was was really important. Um, and this sort of went along to the point that in 1555, um, Pope Paul IV, who wasn't actually Pope that long, but anyway, um, he, this is the year he got to be Pope, and he issued what becomes, okay. but was not necessarily at the time, but is now a sort of notorious papal bull, um, which forced the Roman Jews into a ghetto and mandated that they sell all Mm. their real estate to Christians. So this is where we're getting towards that, you know, there were times and places when Jews could own land, but we are now crossing that line into the point when they cannot, right? Um, So they're being forced into the ghettos. 
Uh, Jews can no longer hire Christians as servants um, or as wet nurses. Uh, mm-hmm. Jews are now forbidden from eating meals with Christians or forming friendships with them. And you mentioned Merchant of Venice earlier. This is something that comes up. Right? Yeah. When Shylock makes some of these sort of snide remarks, he's not really allowed to eat with them <laughs> or mm-hmm. to be friends with them. Was, like, there are actual laws about this. Wasn't there a thing at some point that it became that if you had a Jewish child who got baptized, they had to be adopted by Christians? Yep. Yeah. So that if, you well, know, it wasn't even there just were that. It's actual more like you w- legal cases where... Somebody had, like, the servant had had a sick child given last rites, which counted as, like, a baptism, and then they recovered, and they had to, like, there was a legal case about whether or not they had to be adopted. Yeah, this is one of those things um, that probably happened, how often it happened isn't clear. Uh, It's the Jewish side Mm -hmm. of a lot of horror stories that Christians told about Jews that then ended up in pogroms. There's the flip side. The Jewish horror story is... Your servants, whoever, will take your kids away and get them baptized, and then you won't ever see them again. Yes. Um, that isn't to say that it never happened. And actually, you know, on that note, like in the United States of America and also Canada, for most of our history, up through the mid-1900s, and maybe past the mid-1900s, so within the past 50 years or so, um, Native American kids were frequently forcibly adopted mm-hmm. out. Which is why there are now laws about that. Australia, too. Yes. Right? The lost generation. Yeah. I mean, everywhere where there was colonialism. Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. This happened. Yeah. There were a lot, a lot of um, laws that were essentially designed to shrink the existing tribe's membership roles. Yeah. By, like, in some Mm -hmm. cases, literally stealing their people away. Yeah. But it was also very much, right, forced Christianity, um, all of those things. But but Mm -hmm. that was always, that was frequently the excuse. I must have said always. It wasn't always, but that was frequently the excuse, right? You know, these kids will be raised Christian. So there was this sense. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not that that hasn't happened. That has absolutely happened (laughs) throughout time. Um, And in medieval Europe as well. Yeah. Um, all right, so this so this bull that gets passed, um, and essentially what happens is right now Jews can still sort of be they're not supposed to be merchants anymore. They're not. Yeah, you know, it sort of starts to take a lot away from them a lot of the businesses that they were formerly allowed to have. And one of the things that starts to go along with this um, are clothing requirements. So famous things like it's not necessarily the yellow circle, mm-hmm. um, but badges that will set you apart. So in 1577 in Mantua, um, Jewish men are required to wear two large um, visible strips of orange cloth. Okay. And in 1612... Do we know why they chose orange? Is it just a readily available dye? Yeah, it doesn't run, also. Usually. Um, okay. It's it's bright, it's visible, and it it won't sort of fade. I mean, you wear it deer yeah. hunting. Well, but. <laughs> today, yes, but <laughs> that's probably not what no, they're doing. But it's one but. of the it's one of the color fast dyes that existed. No, you know. So if it rains, then it won't sort of disappear or whatever. Yeah, I was gonna say. Fun fact: It turns out deer are colorblind. Oh yes, but you don't wear so the. They don't know if you're wearing orange. Right. I was gonna say you don't wear it for them though. <laughs> yes. I know that would be. 
I mean, that would be like a warning. That would be. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's fair play, anyway. honestly. That's true. I mean, yeah, I do see that point. Uh, deer, the deer ought to have knowledge. Yes. yes. To run if they see um, a flash of orange. Yeah. Yes. Um, that's funny. But no. So, um, yeah, in 1612, Manchu Jews do get restricted to a ghetto. And then finally in 1630, um, they're expelled from Mantua. So, um, it, so it takes a while. Eventually, mm-hmm. even Mantua does sort of. Um, but basically, up until we get sort of into the late 1570s, and remember, 50, 55 is when the bull is sort of first passed that does all this stuff. And it takes another 20 years for Mantua to start stepping things up. Um, and then even then, um, another sort of 50 years before they really start to expel the Jews, right? Mm-hmm. So there, there was a sense, um, even if it's, you know, it's not an entirely positive thing exactly, but right. that the theater of this community really made a big enough difference and was important enough mm-hmm. to Mantua that there was a sense of protection um, yeah. for quite a long I mean, time. 25 years approximately is enough time for everyone in that group to have sort of turned over, right? But oh, you, well, they've been going for the a end, long time, though. Yeah. Because they've been going since like the 1480s, at least. Well, I mean, like toward the end, you you sort of start reaching the point where whatever personal relationship you might have felt. Yes, with, with someone else's now. The people yeah. in the group in 1550. It's like their kids, maybe, or yeah. And your that guy's kids. retired. Yeah, so you might not have the same sense of a personal responsibility or loyalty. Loyalty, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, but this goes on for at least a hundred years, um, because we have evidence for Jews performing, um, in 1489, mm-hmm. uh, and they're actually performing the story of okay. Judas and Holofernes. Um, and they're not actually, they're performing, um, at the marriage of one of the Gonzaga daughters. Okay. To a duke. <laughs> um, so... This is actually a very long, so this, you know, went across a lot of generations. So speaking of sort of, you know, as things wound down at the end, but it yeah. did cross a lot of generations. Um, and sort of went on, right? So anyway, so this is, it's in some ways exceptional mm-hmm. what was going on in Mantua, right? Um, but it's, it wasn't unheard of, right? That, um, in other places in Italy as well, that there were groups. Mm-hmm. Who performed, right? Um, and there was this sort of sense, right, of Jewish theater groups. Um, Mantua was what was the one where it was sort of the most official and where they were really given protection on some level in return for what they did. Um, but this is something that sort of existed, right? Um, yeah, so that's sort of the positive side. <laughs> Um, that is Jewish theater and Jews doing theater um, and Jews doing theater even for the Yay. Christian community and yeah, being sort of mm-hmm. appreciated for it. Um, as I said, not entirely rosy. I mean, it's not like they really yeah. had a choice or anything, but you know, I mean, at the same time, I'll say all the actors, nice <laughs> yeah, all the actors I've you met would be extremely happy with the attention I guess. <laughs> that they would be like, Hey, you want to come to our mm-hmm. show? Sure. Yeah. I mean, partially 
I live in the community theater world, but right. Well, and the sense is like you're. <laughs> Yes. But I mean, you're, you know, yeah, you're funding yourself fine, all of those things. But yeah, at the same mm-hmm. time, you are being appreciated for the thing that you do. You know, you're being asked to do it for free for the ruling family, but yeah. also... It's good to be the king, as someone once said. <laughs> That's what happens in these situations. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yes. yes. Ah, yes. Speaking of Jewish entertainers. All right. Um, we haven't mentioned Mel Brooks yet, so there he is. Yay. Um... All right, so that's sort of the, the positive side. Okay. Um, now I figured we'd go to the other side, <laughs> which is the portrayal of Jews okay. on stage by Christians in the Middle Ages. I mean, this is a little bit different. Um, and this is actually, this goes to a comment that we got recently asking about sort of the yeah. creation of race, essentially, the modern definition of race. And there's been a lot written about this, and we'll put more in the notes. (laughs) But there are some really interesting points here. One of the things people have said is that um, anti-Semitism in Europe, in the Middle Ages, in some ways created the modern definition of race. And that is definitely partly true. And the reason that one can say that this is partly true is because, of course, race is a completely social construct. There is no right genetic material for race. Um, there is for skin color, <laughs> like for eye color, hair yeah. color. Well, my understanding is that if you move from, like if I moved from Wisconsin to, I don't know, somewhere mm-hmm. tropical like right. Sumatra, and my descendants lived there for a thousand years... They would change from my typical, like, vaguely clear complexion to something close to what the the locals did. And it has to do with, like, the amount of sun exposure that you get. Yeah, because ultimately. So that's like an adaptation. I mean, that is how we have skin color to begin with in human beings. Because we are. Yes. Our DNA is all the same. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, our DNA is also largely the same as, like, a banana's. Right. Um, well, like. and chips and stuff. But that's the point, right? Homo sapiens are one species. We are one species, and that's it. We're homo sapiens. Like, mm-hmm. we are all homo sapiens. There are not any other hominids alive today. Sadly. I mean, that'd be cool. But they're not. It's just us. Um, and obviously, even to the extent that, you know, there are chromosomes for, like, um, biological in a sense, biological sex, um, we don't fully understand how that works either. I mean, you know, XX and XY are not the only possibilities, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, right? That's really complicated. Yes. Like, yeah. <laughs> much more complicated than the little chi-squares that you're taught in yes. tw- 10th grade biology or whatever. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that being said, even as much as we don't understand how sort of sex exactly works (laughs) i don't mean literally i mean of course biological sex difference we don't really fully understand how it works how it's encoded all those things because obviously there's a huge range of stuff that's possible um but there is some biological form of it somehow right um Mm -hmm. but yeah that doesn't exist for race so race is entirely constructed socially um 
yeah, skin color, of course, people have different skin colors, but that's, you know, people just do. Yeah, for various adaptations, as people move around and intermarry and all that stuff, whatever. Um, You know, when you send your DNA out to like 23andMe or wherever, um, and they come back and they're like, we're we're pretty sure that these are the places you're from, but we might revise it in the future. Mm -hmm. The reason they know where you're from is because they have, you know, 50,000 people with similar DNA who all say that they are from that specific area of Poland, right? And who all say that they're Jewish. And so they're like, well, (laughs) you're probably Jewish from this area of Poland. Yeah. You know, but as they revise stuff more and more that you might get moved around. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's funny because I don't want to poo-poo the science because obviously there's actually a lot of science going on, but it is sort of like the way that people go to see a mind reader and they're like, I'm thinking of some, do you know somebody whose name begins with a H and they're like, Oh, my, my great grandfather, Harry. And they're like, yes, Harry, that's the name I'm getting. And you know, so it's, it's sort of like if you look at people's DNA and you, you're like, so where do you think you're from? And then you look at their DNA and you go, huh, that seems about right. (laughs) You know, like, there's yeah. there's obviously a lot of people who either they know where they're from because their family has lived in Ireland for like a thousand generations or right. they have very strong family stories about where they happen to be from. Mm-hmm. Yep. The funny thing, of course, is, is people find out some of these are wrong because the DNA will sort of mm-hmm. come back and be like, you know what? Most people with your DNA are not from there. They're from this other place. Are you sure you're not from this other yeah. place? <laughs> you're probably from this other place, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, of course, there are a lot of weird things that happen, right? So they find a skeleton or a mummy that's 40,000 years old, and they test it. And they're like, well, this mummy, the DNA matches up most closely with the people who live over in this area of the world today. Um, did the mummy come from that area of the world? Did people from that area of the world used to live over here? We don't know. All right. I feel right. like I did see one where they found a, a mummy, probably in a, a peat bog or something in Britain. Oh, sure. And Linda Man? tracked down its descendants living like 150 miles away. Yes. Um, that, of course, is a thing that also can happen. because so there, there are families that don't travel very yes. much. These things are absolutely possible, right? Um, Yes. But it is that sort of thing. And of course, you know, then there's like, I think we've talked before about, um, you know, the guy who was found, you know, 20,000 years later in the Alps, right? Um, where did he come from? Yes. Yeah. And yeah. Where did he come from? Where did he go? Right. <laughs> um, and so where was he going? Um, anyway, so yeah, so race is an absolutely social construct. There's no DNA that codes it. Um, and of course... You know, when you said if your descendants moved, the thing is, of course, when people go places, they intermarry, right? (laughs) So that's really what happens. Uh, After the initial migration of peoples out of Africa, of Homo sapiens out of Africa, uh, where you did have those initial adaptations to their local places, um, even then it was pretty clearly intermarriage. Because if you were in Europe, you've got some Neanderthal DNA. And if you come from certain parts of Asia, then you've probably got like Denisovan DNA. Right. So intermarriage gets you those adaptations you need to live in that place. Right. So this brings on a really interesting 
problem for people who are prejudiced <laughs> in any in any given way. Prejudiced. Um, because what if there is a group of people living among you who are different in some way? In this case, let us just say on the basis of religion, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Uh, Oliver Schultz yes. and Ginsburg, of course, on the basis of sex. In this case, we will say on the basis of religion. All right. So, um, be very hard to kick yes. all the women out. Not that there aren't probably like, groups that have tried. Put yes. them in a ghetto. I don't know. Hand, handmaid's yeah. tale, you know, whatever. Um, but essentially... Well, they tend to have a self-limiting... Yes, I mean, you do definitely need some women. Factors. would <laughs> be an issue. Anyway. Um, yeah. So here we are. Well, you need some people who can have children. And also some people yeah. who can create children. <laughs> like, you definitely need need a few yes. possibilities in there. And a wide enough... I'm going to say that people who are hostile to people who define themselves as women would also probably be hostile to whatever various permutations of trans oh, yes, of people yes. might come along. Like, they're not like, yes, trans men can stay with us and have babies, but probably that anyone would not who be defines themselves they... as a woman right. has to yes. go. Yes. Um... <laughs> Yeah. This is an interesting yes, culture, though. Um, but anyway, yeah. So essentially, what, what tends to happen, right? So we have, on the basis of religion, um, we have this issue of, if these people have lived here for a while, then they probably don't actually look that much different. They probably look the same. Mm-hmm. They've been around. They've intermarried. They've, you know, whatever. Um, so how do you tell them apart? Yes. Well, uh, the markers on their clothing is, this is one of the reasons that exists, right? It exists precisely because Jews don't look different, (laughs) right? You wouldn't Mm -hmm. need to mark them if they looked different. They don't look different, so you need to mark them. Yeah. And also nowadays, people, you see people adopting this themselves, right? And wearing specific clothing choices, um, in order to mark themselves as separate from mainstream society in mm-hmm. some way. Yeah. Whether it's uh, just wearing, you know, like, observant shoes, wearing a uh, wig or something, if they happen to be married, all the way to hijabs and yeah. uh, Sikhs wearing mm-hmm. turbans and things but, like that. But, you know, one of the things, one of the places that a lot of those things come from is specifically the need to mark yourselves Right to mark yourselves as observant, mm-hmm. for example, um, but also frequently the need to mark yourselves as observant in relation to others. Right. So I think we talked about this when we talked about the hats. We talked about icons and stereotypes. So sometimes when sumptuary laws were created to set Jews apart, there were people in the Jewish community who also really backed them because they also thought that Jews needed to be separate. Right. They didn't want people melting into society yeah. and sort of disappearing into the crowd and no longer practicing or being today basically what we'd call reform. Right. So on the one hand, you need to mark people so that they look different. And on the other hand, right. you need to start to create stereotypes that supposedly make them look different. So it's a cycle of reinforcing difference. You mark people and then create a stereotype that those people are marked and clearly different. Right. The problem is that if they really looked different, you wouldn't need to mark them with a yellow cloth or an orange cloth or hats or whatever. So um, really interesting is Sarah Lipton's article, Where Are the Gothic Jewish Women? Mm. 
uh, and it analyzes what she calls wonderfully the non-iconography of Jewish women. So she says, quote, there are almost no visually distinguishable women in medieval Spanish art or, for that matter, in high medieval art as a whole. End quote. Uh, which is really sort of fascinating, right? Uh, medieval Jewish women are largely unmarked, certainly in art, but maybe also sort of on the street. Um, Jewish men are marked in art. And also, of course, walking around the street, women are also supposed to wear badges walking around, certainly, um, but they don't somehow seem to be marked in quite the same way. And there's something very interesting about that. There really is a sense of the way in which race, as it comes to be defined in the West, which is supposedly based on skin color, but of course really isn't at all, um, that gender also plays a role in it. And that's something we absolutely still see. Was it Were, were Jewish women felt to be okay targets for intermarriage in a way that maybe Jewish men were felt to be threatening? Not necessarily. Um, that being said, back to the Merchant of Venice again, of course, um, <laughs> theoretically, if a Jewish woman was converted out and was baptized, um, that was potentially acceptable in a way that maybe a Jewish mm -hmm. man wasn't if he converted, um, maybe based Obviously. somehow on the sense of sort of women as extensions of their husbands, uh, maybe men as more autonomous or somehow more suspicious if they convert, um, maybe they didn't really... But obviously, Jewish men did convert. Obviously, they did. Um, but there is that question. Mm -hmm. And one of the brilliant, brilliant things about Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice that I love um, is that, first of all, he has put in pretty much every prejudice that he could think of into that play. Right. Yeah. So there's not just anti-Semitism, but there's sexism, there's classism, there's ageism, there's homophobia, there's racism. It's all there. Um, on top of that, we have Lorenzo, who, of course, marries Jessica, who's Jewish. He, you know, she converts to marry him. Um, he is clearly aware, in a way that she is not, that conversion isn't going to just disappear her Jewishness. Yeah. Um, and there's some really interesting mm -hmm. things about sort of, is Portia purposely, like, ignoring her and not talking to her in some of these scenes, the couple scenes where they're together? Or sort of being, she mentions her a couple times, or she says, you know, and you, Jessica. But there does seem to be a weirdness, and that's often... They're not really passing the Bechdel test, exactly. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, and there is a real sense of which in performance, um, you start to, like, you sort of see Jessica maybe start to realize that mm -hmm. entering Christian society isn't quite so easy. Right. But Lorenzo's not surprised. Like, he knows... It's not that easy, right? So there is a real sense of how marked are you? How erasable is it? And that is exactly why, even though we're talking about religion, that idea that it can't right. really be erased. It can't really be washed away by baptism. Um, people aren't going to be like, oh, mm -hmm. now you're great. No. Right? And that is, that is absolutely where you start to get that sense of race, right? And sort of then by the time you get to the U.S. and slavery – it's yes. worked its way into things like the one blood rule, right? You can look yes. white. <laughs> it, is. it doesn't mean you are white, right? You can have been baptized. It doesn't mean you're Christian. Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, like, it's actually really surprising to know that the children of Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, like I mentioned that one of their sons moved to Madison with his family. 
Yes. And he, like, they joined white society. They changed their last name to Jefferson and basically decided, like, we're going to be white. Yep. And they would have looked yeah, white. They were white. I mean, for all intents and purposes, they were. Like, nowadays, they were probably nobody would have questioned other them. White right. people. Yeah. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. and it's ne- it's really not something that you think about um, when you think about slavery, right? Because when people characterize slavery as something that happened only to, like, these... Mm-hmm. African people of African descent who were specifically brought here for the purpose and not thinking about the the children of the children of the children of slave owners. Yeah. The children, yes, the descendants, the fact yeah. that there were like so many yeah. multiple generations. Well, if I may of, uh, bring up the Supreme Court again, because here we are. Yes. Um Yes. Why not? So Plessy versus Ferguson, which is a I talk about a lot in class, um, because of course, right, it's the Separate but equal decision that then finally gets overturned with Brown. Thurgood Marshall. Yeah. Shout out. <laughs> and Plessy was, I teach this along with the play, The Actor Rune, and also Brandon Jacob Jenkins' modern play, An Actor Rune. Because Plessy was what was known as an actor rune. He was one eighth black, mm-hmm. which is to say he was white. He looked white. Yeah. <laughs> and that was the point. He could absolutely pass for white. Um, but because of that, they, they right, the sort of powers that be, the same as sort of eventually with Rosa Parks, right? Uh, you have to pick your cases, <laughs> right? Yeah. So you pick a guy who could pass for white. He can sit down the white carriage and who's going to know? Nobody's going to know until s- someone who knows knows him says something, right? Mm-hmm. But that is the point. He is white. He clearly looks white. Is he allowed to ride in this carriage? If not, why not? Mm-hmm. Why can't he ride in the same train car as everybody else? Right? Yeah. Um, and by everybody else, I mean, you know, everybody white. <laughs> like, why can't everyone just ride in the same carriage? Um, mm-hmm. And so there we, and of course, separate beat equal. And um, it, it was obvious. I mean, that decision made it obvious if it of course, it had always been obvious, but really codified the fact that race wasn't based on skin color. <laughs> um, and mm-hmm. there's a sort of famously the dissent, which is very racist, but has this famous line where the justice says um, that one day this decision will be looked at in the same way the Dred Scott decision is now looked at. Right. Mm-hmm. Which is a pretty good awareness of things. Yes. <laughs> that decision would absolutely be looked at in the same way the Dred Scott decision is now looked at. Um, but it is that reminder, right, of how how these things become codified. Yeah, they have nothing really to do with whatever we're told defines race or religion, right? Um, it becomes this construct, this way of, yeah, defining people who are supposedly other. Right. And the problem is that that mm-hmm. definition, of course, is always going to be much messier than any sort of <laughs> any biological distinction or anything else, even if one existed, would actually be. Right. Right. Um, well, I mean, that's the problem we get into with sex nowadays. Yeah. Is when you have a binary 
there are always cases that start to break down the binary. And, like, obviously, race is... It's thought of more binary in the United States than in other places, maybe, but it's still, like, very hard categories, but then you have so many people who are on the edge in one way or another that it becomes very difficult to continue to justify the binary Mm -hmm. as a binary. Yeah, well, and also speaking of gender, I mean, like, the, um, you know, female athletes whose testosterone is a specific whatever, being forced to take hormones and shit. Mm-hmm. I mean, that stuff is... Oh, Castor yes. Semenya. Um, yeah. And that stuff is just horrifying because on top of everything else, there's zero, 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 zero scientific proof and a lot of proof in the other direction, right, that it has nothing to do with anything. You know, so yeah. what the frick? But yeah, there's so there's a lot of horrible stuff going on. Um, but yes, right, it's a reminder... This is super controversial in the running yeah. community. But nobody but, quite knows what to do with trans athletes mm-hmm. right now. But you know, I mean I'm not gonna win, so it's easy for me to be like, whatever, I don't care. They they can do what they you know, they should run. Yeah. But I can see why somebody who is gonna be competing head to head for ten thousand dollars or whatever might have Well, but if more complicated but I mean, feelings. Not necessarily if someone's trans then they're taking whichever hormones that that goes and you know like mm-hmm. you let people be who they are yeah. also the question of should women and men not be competing each other against each other in the first place you know i mean arguably there are a lot of sports where they could be yeah they only they do yeah. in show jumping right you know it's not horse doing most of the work though yes you know. Well, because no. it's really boring. <laughs> the point is, like, why <laughs> play softball instead of baseball? Sorry. Which is ridiculous. <laughs> oh. Women can play, you know, anyway. Yeah. So, on all of these levels, right? I mean, there's just so much yeah. stupid crap that we do. Uh, but a lot of these binaries are absolutely artificial, of course. But race is even more artificial than all of them, right? Um but it really does have a lot to do with the yeah. Middle Ages, yeah. So I just wanted to mention, so we've talked about all this. Um, there's a the Lucerne Easter play, 1453, is sort of when it starts. Um, and then much later, 1583-1597, the town clerk or the city clerk at the time, uh, Renward Sisset, becomes the new producer of this play. And he sort of rewrites it. And he stages it. He got these diagrams. And it's this brilliant sort of uh, mother load for... Um, anyone studying medieval theater because he just has notes coming out the wazoo and he has some really interesting things like he doesn't want women on stage which is clearly a reference to the fact that women are absolutely on stage in a lot of places in Germany which is where we are by the way German speaking Mm -hmm. areas sorry I mean this is Lucerne but German speaking areas Lucerne yes yes but German speaking areas Um, and there are lots of women on stage in German speaking areas but he doesn't want women on stage um and he has these extraordinary costumes he created for this chorus of Jews who are in the temple. And it's this sort of, um, it's essentially mm-hmm. a congregation of Jewish men. And they also basically serve as a chorus. And he wrote them songs and all this stuff. And they're in the temple. Um, so, you know, they're like with all of the temple stuff in the, the Bible, right? Before the temple is destroyed. This is the congregation of Jews, essentially. Okay. And um, they're also with Moses at a point, which is weird because 
but anyway. Um, and so their costumes mm-hmm. <laughs> um, have on them the sun, moon, and stars, and then like other sort of decorations and Hebrew letters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and it makes me think of, I'm not sure if it is, but again, so this is a weird way where I said the stereotype of sort of Jewish wizards is not really a thing anymore. That's what I was thinking of is very but Merlin. Yes, yes, that is really what it makes me think of. And from his description, that seems to be very much what it is supposed to make us think of, right? Yeah. Sun, moon, stars, other decorations, Hebrew letters over their robes. Yeah, right? It's basically a chorus of Jewish wizards. <laughs> um, okay. But the idea that they're really supposed to stand out, mm-hmm. right? They're supposed to look really sort of interesting. Um so they are very clearly marked, right? Um, in a way that none of the women ever are. Mm-hmm. And marked in a way that is really intriguing. That has clearly set them apart as the other. Um, that makes them very different. But also a really important part of his sense of this performance. Hmm. So there's a, there's a very weird element (laughs) Um, to his sense of how they should be portrayed. Uh, But it does sort of follow um, this idea, honestly, that they are set apart in a way that makes them very clearly different. Right. And yet the women aren't right. There is no female equivalent to this. Yeah. Right. Um, So he really is marking them. (laughs) in a way that draws attention sort of, yeah, to their otherness and their difference. Um, and the songs and the music as well. I mean, he, so it's not just the costume, um, but the portrayal is, is very clearly sort of set apart. So there's something sort of interesting about that. Um, it's also worth pointing out that there are some famous plays about the sacrament there are a lot of sort of medieval legends about Jews torturing the sacrament. We talked about this a bit in our Easter episodes. Ah, yes. Um, and sort of two of the better known plays, there's an English play from Croxton, known as the play of the sacrament. Um, and then there's a British play as well, the mystery of the sacred host. And in that play, in the French play, um, the Jewish merchant or moneylender who does this, is executed at the end. But his family hmm. converts. His wife and his kids convert. Okay. Um, so again, right, you had sort of said before, um, it doesn't mean that they're not marked still, but they're allowed to convert and sort of be alive. And he does not and is executed. Yeah. Right. Um, that being said, the French play also executes the Christian woman who helped him. Hmm. Interesting. She also kills her own, who also, she helps him, and then she also kills her own child. Yeah, which is, of course, in a sense, a way of saying that by helping him, right, she has gone the other way. She doesn't actually convert to Jesus, because I don't know if, I mean, of course you could. It's not like they didn't think you could, Mm -hmm. but it's not a thing you'd put in a play. But she has kind of been tainted in reverse. Right. And her killing her child is very much, right, she's the anti-Mary killing the not Christ child. Um, so what she's doing is very similar to what he mm-hmm. did. Right. So she's also executed at the end. 
Um, so there is a sense, right, that the, the Jewish woman is okay. <laughs> She's allowed to convert. On the other hand, being a woman isn't necessarily a get-out-free card, right. because the Christian woman is drawn into the evil plot and ultimately also executed. Right? So there's always this complexity about the way race works. <laughs> right? And who exactly, right, this, that sense of the one-drop will, it doesn't exist yet, but who gets tainted and who doesn't? Yeah. Right? Um, it's worth pointing out that at the end of the English play, all of the Jews convert, and they're going to go off and uh, proselytize, essentially. They're going to be, go be missionaries. Okay. Um, so they're not executed and they're okay. Yeah, they're going to go be missionaries. They aren't, like, accepted into society. Mm -hmm. Right? Uh, but they're okay. But they're still on the outskirts. So again, you know, converting doesn't clear away right. all sin. Even though baptism is exactly supposed to do that. Mm -hmm. Right? <laughs> it sort of does and it sort of yeah, doesn't. I mean, like, remembering the Inquisition... Um Yes. <laughs> I do I do believe that there was a certain amount of suspicion cast on Jews who chose to convert, right, in Spain. Oh, there's a ton. Um, Converse the I mean it's a famous that that yeah. they were under deep suspicion, suspicion that they would continue doing Jewish stuff. Which in fact many of them yes. did. But also they were looked at as very untrustworthy. Um, you know, a lot of them end up fleeing to England, mm -hmm. which Jews weren't technically allowed in, but of course there were Jews at the time, absolutely. Right. Um, but then of course in England, the suspicion, it wasn't necessarily the problem that they were Jewish, but that they were Spanish. Right. So there's still great suspicion. Yes, you say you fled here because you weren't accepted in Spain, but really you might still be loyal to Spain. Mm -hmm. Right? And of course, uh, Queen Elizabeth's doctor, who's Jewish, who gets executed because he's Spanish. Mm -hmm. Right, and very clearly gets executed more because he's Spanish than because he's Jewish, because there is that sense of well, you might still be loyal to Spain. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, going and coming. Right, this is sort of the problem. But in answer to that sort of idea that yes, a lot of modern race theory <laughs> comes out of these issues in the Middle Ages yeah. of trying to sort of solve what is known as the. Judenfrage, the Jewish question. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Cool. So that was some upsides and some downsides to the portrayals. I mean, so Jews themselves on stage, yes. but then also the portrayals of Jews on stage. To be fair, we didn't get into the really nasty stuff. Because, you know. Why? Yeah. We can do that some other time. But, <laughs> I mean, but you know, some some good contrasting yeah. ideas and things. Yeah. Yes. If you're really super interested in heavy-duty anti-Semitism... Uh, there's plenty of stuff to read elsewhere. Oh, you yeah. Know. Yep, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're going to cut it off here anyway, because we are getting close yes. to the time. Um, yes. Or rather, close to the 20 minutes over the time, which is our normal time of calling it. Right. <laughs> um, yes. So, Happy New Year to everybody. To you, also. Yes, um, and by now it might be almost actual New yes. Year, secular New Hopefully. Year, so, well, Christian Christian New Year. Yes, yes. well, yeah. So, happy uh, happy New Year, whatever New Year you are celebrating. Um, right. And uh, feel free to send us a question at uh, questions at askamedievalist.com 
or use the form on our website, which is askamedievalist.com. We do answer questions. It takes us a while to get through things sometimes, and we are slow, but we will we will read your comments with much excitement and uh, yes. even write you back. Uh, hopefully by the time yes, this episode eventually. comes out, we will actually have answered the person also via email. So, oh, yeah. yes. Um, I would say a few months ago. At this yes. Point, yeah. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Yeah, and feel free to follow us on Facebook. Um, by search- searching for the Ask a Medievalist Facebook group. And we'll, you know, post announcements of when we have things coming out. We'll post relevant articles, if any. Uh, we have a good time. Low throughput in terms of clogging up your feed. So following it is a good way yes. to stay informed. I think that's all our announcements. Yes. Yep. All right. Uh, so, everybody, I hope that you're all staying safe and you got your flu shots and you're feeling good and uh, just keep it medieval. Ask a Medievalist is a production of This Can't Be That Hard Studios and is not endorsed, acknowledged, or condoned by Virginia Commonwealth University or any of its constituent departments. Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons Attributional Non-Commercial License version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com. 